passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Invite you to open up to Ruth. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 3 uh, this morning. Uh, we've been working our way through Ruth uh, the last couple weeks. And uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Kurt uh, shared with us from uh, Ruth chapter 1. And we saw Ruth chapter 1 kind of sets the scene for us as we look at this book. Uh, Ruth 1 tells us about this family, the family of Naomi's that leaves uh, Bethlehem during a time of famine. And they go and they uh, refuge and seek refuge in the land of Moab. Uh, and it's there in Moab that we're introduced to this woman, this uh, Moab woman named Ruth. It's in Ruth chapter 1 that we see Ruth's conversion and we are reminded that God is oftentimes at work in the most unlikely of circumstances and the most unlikely of people. Ruth chapter 2, last week I had the chance to share with you uh, via video and uh, it's all about God's provision. It's all about God's provision for Ruth and for Naomi through Boaz. And even as Naomi, she looked at her life as a life that was bitter. She cursed God. We saw the truth is God is providing. God is at work in their lives. And while we're impressed with Boaz's character and we're impressed with Ruth's character, the great generosity that they show We also see that in the bitterness of life, when our circumstances are painful and the hurt abounds, we can really be responsive in in one of two ways. We can be bitter like Naomi, or we can be like Ruth, and Ruth runs to God as her refuge. She clings to the God of Israel, forsaking the gods of her past. This morning, we're in Ruth chapter 3. Ruth 3, you might think that it it comes just the next day after Ruth chapter 2, but at the end of chapter 2, we see uh, this statement that says that Ruth continued to work in Boaz's fields through the barley harvest and through the wheat harvest. And that's about 60 days. And so this passage takes place about two months after our passage last week. And for those two months, every day that there were harvesters in the field, Ruth was in the field providing for her mother-in-law. At the end of chapter 2, we saw this dark cloud around Naomi's soul begin to dissipate. And every single day over those two months of the harvest, as God continues to provide for Naomi, a miracle is at work in Naomi's heart. The spiritual atrophy that affected her is gone. Her faith strengthens day after day as she takes baby steps of faith, as she is assured over and over and over, God cares. God is with her. But now we stand in Ruth chapter 3 at the end of the harvests. And so while God has cared for them and provided for them through Boaz, there's no, lef- there's no food left in the fields anymore. And so this morning, we're really wrestling through the question, and Naomi is wrestling through the question, Ruth is wrestling through the question of how is God going to provide for us now? Maybe you find yourself in a similar situation where you've seen God provide for you in the past, and now you're in a season of waiting. You're waiting for God to provide. You're waiting for God to speak. You're waiting for God to answer. 
and you were wondering how God is going to act. That's what Ruth 3 is ultimately about. The entire book of Ruth is about God's providence. You might be familiar with the term providence, but I think it's important for us to all be on the same page and have the same definition when we are talking about providence. Providence is oftentimes used as a synonym or an equivalent for Christian luck. And so when someone narrowly escapes a car accident, they will say, well, that was providential. Or if someone's cancer is diagnosed at an early stage that it's treatable, they will say that is God's providence at work. And those statements aren't wrong. It is indeed God's providence at work when we narrowly miss a car accident. It is indeed God's providence at work when cancer is caught early and can be treated. But we're wrong if we just stop there. God's providence is about his, his plans and his purposes being accomplished in our lives in the good and in the bad. God's providence is about how God is at work in the midst of the car accident. It's about how God's providence is at work in the midst of the terminal diagnosis, even as it is at work in the narrowly avoided car accident or the treatable diagnosis in our lives. You see, Ruth is all about providence. It's God's providence that uses a disobedient Elimelech who is abandoning God and fleeing to Moab to introduce Ruth to the God of Israel. It's God's providence at work that uses the death of Ruth's husband, the death of her father-in-law, the death of her brother-in-law to bring Ruth into the land of Israel. And it is Naomi's depression that is used by God's providence to push Ruth into the refuge and the shelter of God's wings. God's providence is not just about the good. It is also about how God is at work in the bad times of our lives. You see, God is doing a thousand things in your life that you can't see right now. It doesn't matter if your life is good or bad. God is at work, and that's what Ruth reminds us about. God moved heaven and earth because he had a plan for a young Moabite woman to eventually become the ancestor of Jesus. God used bad. He used good. He used disobedience. He used obedience to bring this woman into the faith. And it's against this background of providence, of how God is at work in every situation of our lives, that Ruth chapter 3 stands See, Ruth chapter 3 is about the times when we are waiting for God's providence or God's plan to be at work in our lives. And there are really two paths before us. On the one hand, we can run ahead of God's plan. We can try to take things into our own hands and can probably end up in a pretty bad spot. Or we can trust God. We can wait for God, no matter how hard it may seem. I mentioned that we're in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. If you have a Bible, please follow along as I start in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that I may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So I mentioned this passage takes place two months after the end of chapter two. And as we start this passage, we see a completely different Naomi than we saw at the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. Gone is the woman who is bitter at God, who is cursing God. And now we see a woman who not only is just think, not thinking just of herself, but is concerned about her daughter-in-law who desires that her daughter-in-law would have a good future. God's provision has done a miracle in her heart. It's a a powerful picture here of how God's continued natural means of providing for his people, God's natural provision, his natural providence, does a miraculous work in Naomi's life. And now we see this noble desire from Naomi, and that is that she would find rest for her daughter-in-law. It's important for us to recognize this is a noble desire. This is a good thing that she wants Ruth to find rest. Ruth has been at work tirelessly for two months providing for her, and so now she wants someone who will provide for Ruth. Of course, the obvious answer in that culture, in that time, for, for a way to provide for Ruth, to find rest for Ruth, is to find a husband. And for Naomi, she has the perfect candidate in mind. Boaz. It might seem obvious to Naomi and, and probably to us as well. After all, Boaz is single and Naomi, or Ruth is single. Boaz is a family member, and we'll get to that here in a second. Boaz is rich. Ruth is poor. Boaz is considered to be a worthy man. Ruth is considered to be a worthy woman. Boaz is a man known for his kindness and his generosity and his selflessness. And Ruth shows kindness, generosity, selflessness to Naomi. It seems like it's a match made in heaven. And Naomi sure thinks so. So she devises this plan. And it's pretty interesting to see that this is not a plan she's making up on the spot but something that she has thought through quite a bit. And so she says to Ruth, hey, you know what? Boaz is out on the threshing floor tonight, so here's what I want you to do. I want you, after you are done working, to come home, take a shower, put on some perfume, get all dressed up, and head to the threshing floor outside of town. When you get to the threshing floor, I want you to wait for Boaz, wait for him to fall asleep, I want you to approach him. I want you to uncover his feet, lie down at his feet, and he will tell you what to do after that. It's a daring plan. It's a risky plan. It's a bold plan. It's asking Ruth to get dressed up for betrothal and to leave the safety of town to head to the threshing floor for a secret rendezvous in the darkness of night. Ruth, as she's traveling outside of town late at night, she could easily be mugged. She could find herself in a dangerous position. But it's more than just a a dangerous plan. It's also relatively provocative because of the uncertainty of what the text means here. Oftentimes in, in the Bible, this phrase, uncover his feet, is used as a euphemism for uncovering a person's private parts. And so as we look at the ambiguity of this passage, we can say, well, what exactly is she asking Ruth to do here? Is this a a seductive move? Is she asking Ruth to do something that doesn't exactly line up with the description of a worthy woman? 
Does she have a mindset that says the ends will justify the means, that sometimes we have to compromise our faith in order to find God's provision? We'll talk about that here in a few moments. But it's important for us to see that Naomi, even though she is grateful for God's provision, still hasn't learned to trust in God. She's seen God provide for her over and over and over over the last several weeks. And yet now, at the end of the harvest, it's almost as if there's this giant countdown clock that appears in Naomi's mind and she takes stock of how much food they have left over and she begins to count. We have one month, two months, maybe three months until we find ourselves back in the same spot we were when we entered into Bethlehem. And so Naomi has this mindset that says, God, thank you for the past few months. Thank you for your provision. You've been a good God. You've been faithful. You continue to uh, provide for us, and yet now you've stopped. And so now I'm going to have to take things into my own hands. Your provision was good, but it wasn't good enough, so let me give you a little nudge. And then she reads the writing on the wall. She primes the pump, because after all, it's a foregone conclusion that Boaz and Naomi were meant for each other, right? So much so that she sends Ruth off on a mission that could go terribly wrong. If it goes wrong, best case scenario of it going wrong is that she ruins Ruth's reputation. She ruins Boaz's reputation. Worst case scenario, we could find Ruth killed, kidnapped, or even worse. And I want us to just pause here for a second. Because if we are honest with ourselves, I think we can all see ourselves a little in Naomi. We can all have a similar mindset to Naomi, to be as fickle as Naomi is here, to be grateful for God's provision one day, and yet the moment it seems like it is gone, to shoulder the great responsibility to provide for ourselves, to care for ourselves, to not trust God anymore, And say that if God won't do it, then I will instead. Or we can just kind of assume that we know how God is going to act. Or if we're being honest with ourselves, we would at least say how we would act if we were God. And so we look at the writing on the wall. We look at what seems to be obvious, seems to be a natural fit. And we just presume upon God's providence. We run ahead of God and just reach our own conclusions. For those of you who have been in a job search before and you think that the job, there's this one job that just seems perfect for you. Just seems like this is so obvious that God has to be giving this to me. It has to be the right job. Know that oftentimes we can reach different conclusions than God does. You see, God's always got the best in mind for you, but that doesn't mean that you have the same idea as God, as what's best for you. Sometimes God's providence does indeed bring you to bountiful pastures, and yet sometimes it doesn't. And so here, at the beginning of Ruth chapter 3, we see that Naomi has a good heart. She's got her heart in the right place. She wants provision. She wants provision for Ruth, not just for herself, and yet she seeks that the wrong way. 
She approaches the situation and decides that a scandalous approach to solving their problem is the right answer. Rather than waiting upon God, she runs ahead of God to solve her problem. Let's keep reading. Ruth chapter 3 verse 6. So she, being Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the, grain of he- the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Let's pause there. We don't know what Ruth thought of Naomi's plan. She could have thought it was a good idea. She could have thought it was a bad idea. We just know that she begins to follow her mother-in-law's plan. And so she heads out to the threshing floor. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, this is a place that would have been located outside of town. Would have been outside of Bethlehem. It would have been a flat location. And it was going to, this is important for us to understand, it was a communal location. It wasn't just something that Boaz had and every other farmer had. This is one spot where all of the farmers of Bethlehem would come and they would thresh together. So after the grain would be harvested, it would be transported to this threshing floor. And on the threshing floor, the grain would be separated from the husks. And then the winnowing process would begin. And this winnowing process was pretty laborious and pretty dull. It would involve the farmer taking a pitchfork and throwing the grain up in the air over and over and over for hours on end. And as they would throw the grain up into the air, the husks would be blown away by the wind and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. And this is how they would prepare their food for consumption. So imagine this place filled with farmers who all have pitchforks working for hours on end, throwing grain up into the air. And that's where Boaz is. And Ruth heads out of town at the evening, headed for this location, and she hides secretly until everyone is finished, until everyone has eaten and drank their fill, and then everyone retires to their heap of grain. Everyone would sleep at the threshing floor for the few days that the winnowing process was taking place as an added measure of security for their crop. Now, providentially, God allows things to happen where Boaz sleeps at the end of his heap of grain. Probably Ruth was wondering how on earth is she going to have a private conversation here in the middle of the night with Boaz without waking anyone else up because there's so many people around. When God provides for her, he he finds a place to sleep at the end of his grain heap, which would provide more Uh, security, more privacy for their upcoming conversation. And so Ruth continues to watch and Boaz falls asleep and Ruth waits. Darkness begins to fall, envelops everything. There's a time before street lights, a time before car headlights, nothing uh, nothing but the stars and the moon illuminating the threshing floor here. And Ruth, as it's dark enough, finally begins to creep forward. She's quiet, trying to make sure that she doesn't wake anyone up from all of the people that are surrounding Boaz. And she reaches Boaz's cloak and she pulls it up to his knees. I mentioned that this can be a euphemism to uncover the feet. And I, I, I don't think that this is a euphemism in this case. I think it's more symbolism. 
You see, the Bible has no problem with painting the quote-unquote good guys of the Bible in, uh, in bad light and showing their flaws. It's very apparent with Noah when he gets drunk at the end of the Noah story. It's very apparent with Abraham when he gets Hagar pregnant. It's very apparent with David when he is with Bathsheba. So the Bible has a a pretty good track record of showing when people are in the wrong. It doesn't mince any words. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case here. What's more, the narrator refers to Boaz as a worthy man in chapter 2 and Ruth as a worthy woman here in chapter 3. And it makes no sense for the narrator to use those words if he's about to describe this kind of situation. I think instead that this is a form of symbolism. We're going to talk about this here in a few moments, but it is a symbol saying that she desires that Boaz would provide for her, to protect her, to care for her. And so she lifts his garment up to the knees. And she lies down at his feet and she waits. And she waits. And she waits. Time continues to pass, and we can only guess what's going through Ruth's mind at this time. Not willing to let herself fall asleep because she doesn't want to be caught off guard when Boaz awakes or when someone else, if they were to awake, comes up to her. And so she lies there waiting. Perhaps she thinks about how bad of an idea this was from her mother-in-law. Perhaps she begins to think about how God is going to use this situation. Perhaps she spends some time in prayer. And time continues to drag on and we reach midnight and finally at midnight, Boaz awakes. We don't know if Boaz awakes because there's this cold feeling now on his legs, which he wasn't expecting. Just like when the cover falls off on the bed and you sometimes wake up from that. We don't know if it's because he has a subconscious realization that there's someone else there. But he wakes up and he suddenly realizes there's someone at his feet. And, and uh, normally, I don't know about you, but I, I don't like it when there's something not the way I expect it when I wake up in the middle of the night. Especially, this has never happened to me, thankfully, but someone sleeping at the bottom of my bed. That's never happened, uh, but I, I can't imagine how good that would feel for Boaz. So Boaz is awake, and he's somewhat disoriented, but he has the, um, the understanding to recognize that there's a woman at his feet. And so he says, who are you? And notice at this point, Ruth deviates from her mother-in-law's plan. Her mother-in-law's plan was to do all of these things and just to say, or just basically to wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. But Ruth takes the initiative takes things into her hands and wants to explain to Boaz why she's there. Wants to make sure Boaz doesn't have any wrong ideas of why she's here to explain her purpose for being there. Verse 9 is a very important verse in this chapter. It's critical to our understanding of what Ruth is doing. Let's take a look at the three statements she makes here in in Ruth chapter 3 verse 9. First she says, I am Ruth, your servant. So first, she identifies herself, but even more than just identifying herself, she calls herself Boaz's servant. Now, the ESV, which is what we have before us this morning, uh, isn't that clear about this word servant here in chapter 3, verse 9. Ruth does indeed call herself a servant, but it's not the same word as used earlier in chapter 2. 
Chapter two, as a response to the gratitude and the generosity that she has experienced from Boaz, says, how could you be so kind to your servant when I'm not one of your servants? There in chapter two, that word just means servant. It's an expression of her generosity. But here it's a different word, which can, use, can mean maidservant, maid just a simple statement of her being a female servant. But it's oftentimes used in the Bible by women who are wives as a sign of respect to their husbands. So what Ruth appears to be doing here is taking a risk when she identifies herself as Ruth, to be identifying herself as a prospective wife for Boaz. She's stating her reason for being there right from the very beginning. I am Ruth, your servant. Second statement she makes is, spread your wings over your servant. If the the description of herself as a maidservant wasn't clear enough, here she becomes explicit and she says, I want you to, to take care of me. This phrase, spread your wings, can also be translated as spread your garment. It's a picture in the Bible of protection, a picture of provision. It's especially commonly used in marriage. Ezekiel, I think it's Ezekiel 16, uses this phrase to describe the way God figuratively cares for his bride, Israel. God spreads his garment over Israel to care for them, to love them, and to take care of Israel. But significantly here, it's also the exact same language that Ruth heard Boaz say 60 days earlier when they first met. Boaz described Ruth in chapter 2, verse 12, saying, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a powerful moment. Ruth here, when she is making her request to Boaz known, uses the exact same language that Boaz used all those days earlier when he blessed Ruth. It's almost as if Ruth is saying, Boaz, when we first met, you said that you had heard of my faith. You said that you were impressed by the fact that I was taking refuge in God, that I have left the God of Moab and was clinging to the God of Israel. Over these 60 days, you have provided for me. You have taken care of me. You have been generous. Now would you go further and continue to be God's provision for me? Continue to be God's protector for me and for my mother-in-law. In other words, Boaz, you've taken care of me temporarily. You've shown your character. You owe me nothing. Yet would you be willing to be the answer to your own prayer that God would reward me for seeking refuge in him? Ruth's request here is more than just a simple request for marriage. It's more than just a simple request for provision. She's connecting her request to the very provision of God. We see a beautiful picture of her faith her trust in God here. She's saying that I know that God will take care of me. Would you be the means for God to do that? Now Boaz uh, clearly would have been shocked by this, but then we come to the last phrase and it was even greater. She says, for you are a redeemer. She explains why she's approached Boaz and says, for you are a redeemer. 
And we, we saw this word redeemer used in chapter 2. Said that it was an important word. We're going to talk about it this week, so let's talk about it this week. Their idea of a redeemer, or some of your translations may have kinsman redeemer, is a huge part of ancient Israel. It's actually even a bigger part of ancient Israel than what we see mentioned in the Old Testament. And the reason why it's such a big deal to ancient Israelites is because it is connected to the promises that God has for Israel. The idea of a kinsman redeemer is connected to all that God has promised, all of the blessings that God has promised to Israel. What's more, all of God's promises are for all of God's people in Israel. And so if someone isn't able to participate in those promises because they find, they fall the, uh, they find themselves fallen on hard times, it was the family's responsibility to redeem that situation to allow that person to partake in the promises, to partake in the blessings of God once more. So imagine that you are a farmer like just about every single person was back in those days, and you come across a, a string of just terrible luck in the fields where you have bad harvest after bad harvest after bad harvest. Maybe you throw in some more bad luck, and, and something happens where you get robbed. You find yourself in a situation where the only way to provide for your family is to sell your farm. And so you, you sell your farm to provide for your family. It was now your family's responsibility to allow you to participate in the promises of God to come alongside you and to redeem that land, to buy that land back. That's how important the promises of God were to the people of Israel. So Ruth, when she refers to Boaz as a redeemer, has this in mind, has this idea of land in mind. When Elimelech and Naomi left Bethlehem to head to Moab all those years ago, it's likely that they sold their land. Now Naomi wants that land back, and the only way is for a redeemer to redeem it. So she has land in mind, but she has more than just land in mind. Deuteronomy chapter, I believe it's chapter 25, tells us uh, about another way that redeem, redeeming would work in Israel. You see, one of the, the promises of God was land, but another promise of God was offspring, was children. And so if a person died before they had any children, they died prematurely, it was the responsibility of any other brother in that family to actually marry their wife, to have a child with the wife that would be considered an heir to the deceased brother. It may seem odd to our modern day context, text, but this is one of the ways that they would allow someone to participate in the promise of offspring to continue their family line, even when they had fallen on the misfortune of passing away. And so what Ruth is saying here, when she calls Boaz a redeemer, is far more than just getting married. It's far more than just having Boaz physically provide for her. This is a heartfelt feeling, a heartfelt desire that she and her mother-in-law would be able to participate in the promises of God, the blessings of God once again. And here, again, we see Ruth's character, we see Ruth's faith on display. She desires physical provision, absolutely. But even more than that, she wants her family, specifically Naomi, she wants Naomi to be able to participate in all that God has promised to the people of Israel. Ruth's request is far more than just a marriage proposal. 
She's asking Boaz to be selfless and to take a significant loss to take on this family. Let's see how Boaz responds. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For, you are, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem it, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem it, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz hears Ruth's request and is amazed at Ruth's heart. Ruth continues to shine and show her great desire for the faithfulness of God to be manifest in her life. And so Boaz responds by saying that this kindness, this second kindness, is even greater than the kindness that you showed originally to Naomi. In other words, Ruth is continuing to show herself to be even more and more godlike in her character, to be more and more godly with how she's acting and taking care of her mother-in-law, that he is amazed. Now the question is, when he says this second kindness is better than the first, the question is, well, who's in view here? Who is the recipient of this second kindness? Is it Boaz or is it Ruth? I think the answer is both. In one sense, it's referring to Boaz. A lot of times when we think of the book of Ruth, we can think of it as a a love story between Boaz and Ruth. And it's not wrong to see this sort of relationship or these feelings or these affections between the two of them. Boaz is very clearly talking about how great of a woman Ruth is. And so it is completely natural to see this kind of relationship budding. It's most likely that uh, Boaz uh, would have had a wife before Ruth who most likely would have passed away, perhaps in the same famine that drove Elimelech to Moab. If he had any children, they were likely gone as well. And so Boaz was most likely in a similar situation that Naomi was, a man who had no spouse, a man who had no heir, and now he is waiting for, or for, now he is blessed by this request from Ruth. But in a greater sense, I think it's referring to a second kindness to Naomi. You see, if Ruth would have pursued marriage with any other person, with someone who was younger, someone who wasn't a part of the family of Naomi, then she would essentially be forsaking Naomi. Naomi had no realistic way to partake in the promises of God except for Ruth. For Naomi, Ruth's marriage to a redeemer was her last chance, so to speak, to participate in God's promise. And that's what's in view here when this language of of second kindness is seen This is a second kindness to Boaz, yes, but it's also to Naomi. Ruth's commitment to Naomi is so great, it's so unwavering, it's so selfless that she is willing to do whatever is necessary to make sure that her mother-in-law gets to be a part of God's blessing again. That's why Boaz is so amazed here. You see, it's not wrong for us, again, to see attraction or love between Ruth and Boaz. The text warrants it. 
But the book of Ruth is far more focused on Ruth's love that is so selfless for her mother-in-law. The book of Ruth is far more focused on Boaz's selfless love toward Ruth and Naomi than it is toward any sort of romantic relationship here. And so Boaz admits how grateful he is. He sees this selflessness of Ruth and he roots his response once again in the character, in the faith of Ruth. Verse 11, he says that she is a worthy woman, just like he is a worthy man. In this passage, he begins to say that he will do, he will make sure that this comes to pass, whatever that may look like, that it will come to pass because she is a worthy woman. She is a worthy, uh, she's a woman of faith. And indeed, unless we think that there's a happily ever after here, there is a complication. You see, there's another redeemer, someone who is a closer relative of Naomi. And so that person had to relinquish their right and their responsibility before Boaz could step in. And yet, even in this, we see Boaz's character shine through. Let's assume uh, that, that Boaz loves Ruth. Let's assume that Boaz wants her as his wife. Even in this, Boaz is far more concerned with doing things the right way than what his heart wants. He's far more concerned with doing things God's way than the expedient way. Boaz reminds me a lot of John the Baptist here. Boaz is concerned with caring for Ruth and caring for Naomi, but he is absolutely content playing whatever part that God would have for him. Whether that was just a temporary provision in these two months in the field or whether it is a very sacrificial provision through marrying Ruth, he is completely content playing whatever part God has for him in his providential care for Ruth and for Naomi. And here, again, we just see this great contrast between Naomi and Boaz. Naomi, she schemes, she runs ahead of God, she reaches conclusions to try to force God's hand. And at the end of the day, she actually does force God's hand. Boaz and Ruth get married, as I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, are aware. And yet, we see Boaz, who is willing to wait. He's willing to wait for God's timing. He's willing to wait for God's ways. He's willing to do things the right way because he wants to honor God. Boaz is indeed a worthy man, as the text tells us. You see, in a world full of Naomi's, it is very, very hard to be Boaz. We don't like waiting. Many of you probably are are like me, and you pay $99 a year, so that way you can get free two-day shipping from Amazon. Because the idea of waiting for five days is just unthinkable. Many of you, like me, probably have an instant video streaming subscription because the idea of going to a movie store and renting a movie is just unheard of or unthinkable. We don't like waiting. And we definitely don't like waiting upon God. And yet when we wait upon God, our character most clearly shines through. You see, expediency at the expense of obedience is always disobedience. 
Every time that you sacrifice obedience for expediency, you are being disobedient. And that's what Boaz's life here reminds us of. And so Ruth spends the night on the threshing floor. Again, there's no hint of immorality here, but because of safety, to not return in the middle of the night. And the next morning she wakes up, returns home early, and the text finishes and tells us what happens next. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she asked, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz, at the end of this chapter, sends a gift of barley back with Ruth for Naomi. You might be saying, Well, what exactly is the point of this? Isn't this actually counterproductive to Ruth trying to get back home as quickly as possible without being recognized? Well, Boaz's gift here, I think, is a statement. It's a statement to Naomi, and it's a statement to Ruth. First, let's talk about being a statement to Naomi. Back in Ruth chapter 1, when Naomi returns back to Bethlehem, what is the first thing that she says to to the women who come and greet her in Bethlehem? She says that, I left full, but now I have returned empty. And when she says that, who is standing right next to her? Who has returned from Moab with her? It's Ruth, yeah. Ruth hears the words of her mother-in-law saying that I have returned empty. Boaz must have heard these words as well, that, that Naomi, when she returned home, could only think of what she didn't have. She could only think of her emptiness, of the loss that she had experienced. And she had experienced loss. Don't get me, get me wrong. Boaz uses the exact same word here. You said that you were empty, Naomi. I don't want you to be empty anymore. Ruth has provided for you. Ruth continues to provide for you. Ruth is going to be your provision. God is giving you all these things because of Ruth. This gift of barley is a statement to Naomi of, God's, of an assurance of God's provision for her. But it's also a statement to Ruth. Ruth is standing there when her mother-in-law says, I am empty. She is standing there when her mother-in-law says, I have nothing good in my life. Just imagine the pain that Ruth must have felt when she, this woman who had forsaken her family, had forsaken her heritage, had forsaken her people and her God who had left everything to cling to her mother-in-law, hears her mother-in-law say, I have nothing. Boaz's statement here, I think, is a statement to Ruth as well, saying, I know what Naomi once said about you, but she will say it no longer because God is using you to bring her back to him. God is using you to provide for her. So we stand at the end of this chapter. We see God's provision is assured that Boaz has committed himself to do it. What do we make of this passage? 
Remember Ruth chapter 3, all about how we seek God's plan when we have to wait. What are we going to do when we have to wait? We have two options before us. We can be like Naomi. We can run ahead of God, even with the best of intentions. And yet we can be guilty of rash, unwise decisions. We can try to force God's hands. We can presume upon his providence that we can compromise. We can run ahead to places where we think that he's going, but we can't just be too sure. Or we can be like Boaz. You see, it would have been very easy for Boaz to have the exact same mindset as Naomi. Boaz could have neglected to mention the other redeemer. Boaz could have just taken Ruth as his wife and no one would have batted an eye. But he was so committed to doing things God's way that he was willing to wait. He was willing to follow through and let the other redeemer relinquish his right before he took Ruth as his bride. In the midst of expediency, Boaz says, wait. And I think that's our charge this morning. If you find yourself in a season where you are waiting, if you're waiting for God to show up, maybe it seems like God has provided for you in the past and yet he's not providing for you anymore. If you find yourself at a place where you're wondering where God is, why God isn't working, why God isn't active, this text reminds us that we are to seek God's provision in his ways and in his timing. Let us seek God's provision in his ways and in his timing. The Bible reminds us that his will will never contradict what the Bible explicitly says. His will for your life will never contradict what the Bible says. It will never put you in a place where you have to compromise morally. His will may look different than what you expect. His his will may look like it's on a different timetable than what you have. But Ruth reminds us that God is at work in your life. That God will provide for you. Are you willing to wait for God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word. Even as I read this passage, I'm yet again convicted. And so, Father, as we uh, close this service, we do ask that we would rest in you, that you would give us the strength to wait, to wait upon you, to wait for you to provide, because you will provide for us. God, help us to seek refuge in the shelter of your wings, to seek your face above all things, and not to compromise the temptations of this life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.